Welcome to the Ponder New Podcast. I'm Pastor Rob Myalis, and in this podcast we ponder new the ancient stories of Scripture and consider how they might speak to us today. And we're looking at uh, this uh, Lent, we're looking at a, a number of encounters that Jesus has with people in the Gospel of John. And this uh, week we're looking at Jesus encountering somebody who's so other, dramatically other, the, the woman at, at the well, an unnamed uh, Samaritan woman. And um, in a world that is sort of saturated with diversity uh, training, uh, Jesus comes and, and offers profound insight into how we encounter somebody who's other, and, and not just encounter, but, but build a bridge and, and overcome various historical, ethnic, religious, political chasms. It is a longer encounter in Scripture, and so you may uh, be tempted to skip ahead. But if you do that, at least listen to uh, the part through where Jesus asks for water. Jesus came to a Samaritan city called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have no bucket, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us the well, and with his sons and his flocks drank from it? Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come back. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you say that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. Just then the disciples came. They were astonished that he was speaking with a woman. But no one said, 
What do you want? Or why are you speaking with her? Then the woman left her water jar and went back to the city. She said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I have ever done. He cannot be the Messiah, can he? They left the city and were on their way to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Surely no one has brought him something to eat. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to complete his work. Do you not say four months more, then comes the harvest? But I tell you, look around you and see how the fields are ripe for harvesting. The reaper is already receiving wages and is gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows, another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that city believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I have ever done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there for two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard ourselves, and we know that this is truly the Savior of the world. Jesus offers a master class today in this chapter of John in how to reach people who are of a different cultural background. And uh, his, what he does is applicable for uh, you know, race relations in America, bitter political divides, uh, sort of within a local community, sort of the people on the other side of the tracks, uh, also even for different religions and how we engage with people of, of a different religious background. Um, I think, again, what Jesus uh, does here in, in finding uh, a common ground or finding a way to uh, speak the truth to somebody who's different than himself in a way that's compelling. Um, I, I think this, you know, kind of the secret sauce that we're, we're missing in, in our world today. So I think we can all learn something from, from uh, Jesus here. And I wouldn't be surprised if my comments today end up sort of having the church as the strongest reference sort of in my, just because that's sort of in my imagination a lot, how the church sort of engages with people that are different. But I'm sure in, in your life, as, as you listen, you're going to think about uh, all the ways in which there's others in your lives. And yeah, I'm just curious, who, who are the others in, in your life? Who are the people, um, the situations, um, the communities where, where you feel like, um, like th- there is a division, there, there is a bridge, and, and you want to be somebody who can sort of uh, build that bridge or find that common ground. Again, I'm, yes, for instance, like Ukraine and, and Russia right now are divided, but um, where maybe you feel like, oh, okay, in my community, in my life, in my world, in my family, um, you know, in my church, whatever, this is, this is the group or these are sort of the boundaries uh, that exist, the sort of the, the social fault lines. Because Jesus today steps across a huge, uh, not even a fault line, a chasm. Uh, And it's between the Samaritans and the Jews. And uh, the woman at the well even points this out. 
uh, like kind of what are you doing with with me here and the there's so much that we could say about the division of the Samaritans and the Jews but you know it goes back almost a thousand years to to the kingdom after David is king and sort of then the dividing of the kingdom between northern northern and southern Israel which then gets that division becomes exacerbated um, in 770 BC when the Assyrians conquer the northern kingdom but not the southern and the northern kingdom they basically force and chained uh, exile people to go to other parts of their empire and they actually move five different uh, ethnic groups across their historic boundary lines to interbreed them so they have less of an ethnic identity to overcome and, and to rise up against the Assyrians. And that's really sort of the formation of the Samaritan people. Um, and then over the years, continued sort of ways in, in which these sort of the northern and southern part of, of Israel, kind of almost where Lebanon or maybe even Syria is and Israel, sort of just have been in, in conflict. Uh, and so you have these two populations that share, they, they speak, you know, the same basic language. At, at that point, they would have, um, yeah, they would have spoken the same language. They have holy texts that all have Moses in them and then deviate with the later prophets. But the core stories of Abraham and, and the uh, exodus out of, out of Egypt, they're all the same. So there, there is something in common there. But again, over a thousand years, this went awry to the point where in Jesus' day, there's just... Um, they view each other solidly as as the other, and there's sort of every hundred years or so there's like more tension that that's added to this. So when you say, "Oh wow, like the divisions in our society are so deep or in my family or in my community or in my church or like wherever like it's so deep, just know that Jesus today is crossing one of history's um, sort of deepest and longest uh, divisions. so we can't we can't say, well, my divisions are bigger than the ethnic conflicts in scripture that Jesus had to deal with. That's just not true. Now that we understand the conflict of Jews and Samaritans, I want to walk through seven things that Jesus does, kind of seven steps that Jesus takes to overcome this barrier and end in a situation of, of people um, rejoicing and celebrating him as Messiah, having accepted him. And the, the first step that Jesus has to do, and this is going to sound so stupidly obvious, but it's actually remarkably hard, and that is that Jesus leaves his comfort zone and goes to where the other is. He is not waiting in Judea for the Samaritans to come to him, but instead he goes into the territory of the Samaritan Again, it sounds obvious, but in our world today, where we have so much flexibility and freedom about where we work, where we go to church, where we live, um, who we hang out with online, what media we consume, we are so prone as humans to just sort of um, feed the beast and, and hang sort of with our own, circle the wagons. Um, and so I'm curious in, in your life, where have you seen this tendency where there's just such inertia about going to be uh, with the other? Again, I'm sure we've, we've all experienced it. Or, or, or where have you just seen even just taking that first step of leaving your comfort zone, uh, just opening up doors? I'm, I'm always bewildered by the church and 
how many churches complain that people don't go to church, but yet they're unwilling to do anything to leave the safe confines of their building. Again, expecting people to come to them. So, so if we were first step is to to leave the tribe and to go where the other is. Okay. Second step. The second step uh, is to find a common ground. Okay, to find a common ground. And in the case here of the story, Jesus finds a, a well. And a well is something that all humans need. Every human in that society at that time would have been going to the well to get water. So he's finding something that, regardless of whether he's a Jew and she's a Samaritan man, woman, you know, whatever other dynamics we have, like he, they both need this, this water. What also is fascinating, and this one is that I'm still sort of mulling over. Um, as a church, we've uh, talked about in our vision statement how the sacred ground can become the common ground. And I find it fascinating that Jesus here uses, um, decides to meet, at a, at a place that is holy um, and, and even transcending um, to, to the people, that uh, there's this Jacob and this Joseph. And ironically, he points there towards a common religious past that these uh, two groups had here because uh, Jacob uh, would have also been considered a, a sort of an ancestor, a holy forefather in, in uh, the Samaritan religion. And I find it fascinating, again, this, this way in which they find a, something that has a, a sacred ground, uh, alluding to a sort of some fundamental thing they have in common. And, and I wonder, too, if in, in our world the way to find the common ground sometimes is to find those points that are maybe a bit um, not obvious that that would be the common ground. Um, but because they're, they're religious or spiritual, they, they tend to uh, get beneath those differences and acknowledge that there's a sort of a, a fundamental commonness to the, to the human experience before God. Um, and I think about the efforts at our church with our, our sacred ground. Outside, we have these uh, gardens and a community veggie garden, or we're working on a prayer labyrinth. And, and the idea, again, is that this this holy space here that we have in, in nature where things are grown, where prayers are prayed, can actually become a common ground for us and people who are outside of our, our community. So it's step two is meeting people on a common ground, but I'm just curious and I'm going to play with and I'm thinking about the way in which that common ground might actually need to be a sacred ground uh, at first. Okay. Step three. So if if you've uh, gotten out of your own comfort zone, you, you're going to where they are, you're finding a common ground, well, now we have to do the third step. And the third step that Jesus does is that Jesus acknowledges that the woman has something that he needs. Okay? Jesus acknowledges that the woman has something that he needs. He says, give me something to drink. And, and this is big because so often um, when we go to other people, we assume um, you know, that we might have something that they need, um, that we've got all the answers. But here Jesus begins with a declaration that he needs something from this woman. When I was younger, I went uh, to Honduras. And there I was confronted with poverty. Like, I had never seen this level of poverty before. 
and I was very moved and, and I wanted to help. And, um, and I remember this one day in this village that, you know, their, their walkway was just, you know, being washed out. And like, I, I couldn't help myself, but just sort of try to rebuild this walkway with, with stone. And um, I think it was a, a really ridiculous thing in retrospect, because I, I'm pretty sure that the stone I used was actually just sort of loose mud brick that was going to melt away in the next rainstorm. And what I really should have done was focused more on eating the food that they were making. Because even in their poverty, they could still make rice and beans with some hot peppers. And, and I should have focused more on honoring the gifts that they had rather than asking myself, what could I do? But I was just so uncomfortable with the, the reality that people were so much poorer than anything I had seen. So this can become really tough to be humble enough, to be comfortable enough with ourselves to acknowledge our vulnerability before them and, and what we need. And when in life have you been able to encounter somebody else who's different and acknowledge your need and, and discover as you've asked um, that, that suddenly the person opened up? Yeah, do you have any stories? Like, you know, in South Philly, you know, in this meeting lots of tough people and suddenly asking for directions and the, the toughest looking guy suddenly tells you exactly where you need to go. So again, when have you opened up and, and seen that sort of um, acknowledging the gifts of the others? So step four now. Okay, so we've, we've gone out of our comfort zone. We've found a common ground. We've acknowledged our needs. Now, the fourth thing, the fourth thing is that we assert our own sense of giftedness. And, and, the, and this is really tricky here. Now, I've just said you've got to meet people where they are. You've got to you know, acknowledge that they have gifts. But at some level, we're, we're not called to give up our integrity. We're not called to, to deny that we have things to offer. We're not called to deny our sense of truth and, and our fundamental values which may be very different from this other person's. Building a bridge, whether, again, that's a bridge to actually show somebody who Jesus is, to simply get a project done at your work, or to try to create a better community that you live in. It's, it's, it's never one in which we're called to fully give up our own sense of who we are. But somehow we have to be able to articulate exactly, in fact, what we are bringing to this relationship. None of us come with some simply no needs and just say, well, I'm here to, to accompany or to walk with you with no agenda of my own. We all come with our own needs, our own values, and our own convictions. And it's not helpful to the other person to deny that we have them. In fact, we won't actually create sort of a new synthesis if we actually don't put on the table who, who we are. So I'm curious, when you've been around sort of the other, what do you have more trouble with? Acknowledging their goodness or asserting your own gifts that you bring to the table? So again, step three was acknowledge their gifts. And step four is assert your own gifts, recognize and claim your own values. And, and how has uh, being around the other, which one of those two do you find more difficult? Okay, okay so now we're going to get to step five. 
And I think step five and kind of will resolve step four a little bit. But step five, what, what Jesus does is Jesus is saying like, look, you all uh, worship on, on your holy mountain and, and we worship on ours. In fact, the woman is even bringing this up, the fact that there are these two sort of ancient temple mounts, one in Samaria and, and one in Judea, the one in Jerusalem. And they're sort of in competition with one another. And, and here Jesus, again, is going to not deny the difference, not deny his sense of value that Jerusalem is his father's house. He's not going to diminish the spiritual heritage of Jerusalem. But what he says is, is look, in, in the future, we're, we're going to worship in spirit and truth. That the future doesn't belong to your mountain or my mountain, and Jesus is really saying the future belongs to the hill, the mountain on which he's going to die on the cross. But, but Jesus here is saying that, look, there is a common future that we can have. And, and so Jesus actually is saying that the old, the old way that we did it and the old way that you did it, we're not going to be able, we're not going to sort of try to cut that 50-50. We're going to try to create something new. And, and in Jesus' case, he believes that the Spirit is going to allow for a new synthesis of what was and what is. And I want to share with you briefly a way that's happening in our church. So we have been welcoming in um, a lot of people in our congregation who grew up in sort of 80s and 90s mega churches and uh, are saying they don't necessarily want that for their kids. Uh, sort of their just terms ex-evangelical, post-evangelical. And one of the things is uh, that the Lutheran Church historically um, had a very nominal sense of membership, of, of what it means to be a member, almost like a state church. You're actually literally on your birth certificate, you're born into the Lutheran or the Catholic Church. And sort of that Northern European sense of membership uh, comes over. And, and, the, and many of the free churches or megachurches had broken with that model. But we, so we have people coming, and they have a very different sense of what it means to belong to a church, um, about membership. And so um, that's forcing us then to kind of say, well, hold on, like, what do we actually want here? about this. And it's, it's forcing us to come up with a new synthesis of, of what we're actually like looking for uh, when we welcome people into our community. Again, if we really want to engage the other, we've got to acknowledge that the future doesn't simply look like our mountain or their mountain, but that somehow there's got to be a synthesis of spirit and truth that, that's going to look a little bit different than where we presently are. And that the bridge builders, people that are doing this, uh, say at the Jesus level, are able to project a compelling vision for what a future life is going to look like. Uh, you, you tell people kind of what, what the bridge is going to look like, really what the bridge is going to look like, kind of what life together once this bridge is built, how it's going to be better. So now we get to step six. Step six is that um, this, the disciples of Jesus come back. And these are the solidly sort of Jewish compatriots of Jesus. And they look at Jesus and they're like, Jesus, why are you talking to a woman? You're an unmarried man. We don't think this woman is married. Like, what are you doing? And uh, you're talking to a Samaritan. Like, what's going on? And so they actually want him to do something else. They want him to return to their priority list, which is they want to get food. So you need to eat. Like, come back and do what we want you to do. If you seek to build bridges... 
If you seek to cross cultures, you will again and again find that people within your own tribe will not understand why you're doing what you're doing. They'll say that it's not a good priority, that it's an extravagant use of resources, that you're selling out. I mean, it can be kind, it can be undercutting, it can all sorts of things. But when you really try to reach beyond where you are, um, expect what happened to Jesus, not ultimately being crucified, at least I hope not, <laughs> wow, but, but in the sense of having other people not understand. And so you're going to have to dialogue with, with them directly. And you're going to have to dialogue with, with them uh, directly and be willing to articulate to them, as Jesus does, your sense that this really is the will of God. It's going to come down to that level. Like, you're really going to have to say no. I, there, there ha- and this is why you have to almost have to find that sacred ground. The people that are able to cross boundaries often have to appeal to, to God, to the transcendent, to something greater than themselves. You know, people like Martin Luther King, they've got to use beautiful scriptural language because it is so uncomfortable for humans to do this. So step six is be prepared for the pushback. And you're, at that point, you're going to have to articulate from within your own tradition why there's a sense of holiness, why this is a fundamentally a good and worthy thing for us to do. Now you're going to have to sort of the vision that future vision is going to have to be brought back and articulated to the to the sort of the current existing tribe. Okay, step seven. If you do all of this, the last thing that Jesus does after Jesus has had initial success, Jesus stays put. Jesus has to tarry. He cannot move on to the next project right away. And two days doesn't seem like long, obviously. But Jesus is on a pretty tight schedule. So two days of Jesus' time is significant. And most times he doesn't stay behind at all. He just moves on. But here Jesus says, no, we have to stay. He, he's got to eat some food with them. He's got to share a meal. He's got to break bread. He's got to celebrate, hear their stories, heal people in their town. There's more work. It just is about lingering and tearing. If we really want to build that bridge, we want to forge and sort of, again, connect people across the tracks, have a new synthesis politically in our town, ideally in our nation, build a peace treaty, make peace sustainable. It requires a tarrying, a lingering presence. It's not worth engaging in all this unless we're really going to be in it for the long run. So those are seven steps that Jesus takes. Hopefully you've seen them uh, at work in your life. Maybe this challenges you, inspires you. Uh, Let me know. Uh, Shoot me an email, text, whatever. Try to find me and, and, and let me know what you think about this because I sense that the way in which Jesus does this, these are still things that we need today. And I want to acknowledge that um, I first sort of saw this paradigm uh, at, an, at an Orange conference years ago. There was an African-American minister and he shared this and I just was so captivated by it. I should have taken notes. I didn't. But as I continue to study the text, this particular chapter, this it just comes alive to me in, in the way that he had, had looked at it as a model of cross-cultural dialogue. So hopefully something to ponder for you this day.